Welcome to the podcast. Today is March 22nd, 2020. And are we losing our minds here? Today, I want to talk about getting back to reality in the age of real-time COVID data. Now, I don't want to put too positive a spin on things here, but I do think that something more of a level-headed take on things is needed here. Now, I am known to be something of a contrarian, to say the least, and when too many people are on the same side of the boat, that's when I start asking questions. Because usually, to me, that's usually a sign that people are abandoning their own critical thinking faculties, and that they're just lazily embracing a doctrine, a consensus. Now, what we're seeing right now in the media, I think that is starting to resemble an absolute frenzy. So we're at the point of hysteria and alarm, and it's to such a degree that a lot of people are even starting to show signs of physiological anxiety. And I think this is the consequences of consuming weeks and weeks and weeks worth of horrendous, gruesome, alarming news. Now, the news is what it is. It may be all true and all bad, but still, there's only so much you can bear every single day. And you don't need to be checking the news every hour. I mean, it's going to be there later. You don't need to wallow in it every waking moment. And I think people are so on edge right now that this kind of confirmation bias is starting to set in on a personal level. Now, it's easy to see signs of you know impending doom and gloom everywhere you look. And I think that's because that's just how our radios are dialed in right now. And I can give you a personal example of this as well. Now, I just experienced a massive queue at the local grocery store just outside. And, you know, with most people wearing masks and generally just looking very, very concerned and everything. And it was like a classic scene from a dystopian movie. And everything was very ominous and pretty scary. Now, I then decided to just kind of walk around the block and check out the other grocery store, which is on a side street. It's a similar store, but in that one, there was no queue. And I ran into maybe three people in the whole store. So it was a totally different picture. So if that first scene was from Stephen King's The Stand, then this second scene was from a like a rerun of a Friends episode or something. Totally different. Anyway, the point being here, depending on where you look and what you happen to come across, you're going to have your assumptions confirmed. Now, meanwhile, we also keep getting more and more dire extrapolations as to, you know, how many are going to die and so forth. But I'd say, let's go back and look at the data at hand here and try to evaluate what we truly know. So where we are right now and what we know to be the baseline conditions. And I think it's helpful to have a look at, well, how many people die every day from natural causes? Now, I know this might sound kind of crass and insensitive and so forth, but I do think it is a meaningful metric when you're trying to assess the severity of the situation and where it's going. So what's the ratio of corona deaths to total natural deaths? Now, looking at the sheer number of deaths seems to be obvious, of course, but it is a pretty blunt metric and it doesn't really offer any kind of perspective and it doesn't really have any bearing on, you know, projecting the immediate risk to you. And so to put things into perspective here, 100,000 people die every day due to age-related causes. 100,000 per day! And with this virus thing, we're at 13,000 globally so far, and that's over several months. And things are actually starting to come under control in several countries. And also, I mean, it's quite common for elderly people to die from conditions such as, you know, the flu or pneumonia and so forth. And in fact, I mean, you also, you might have as many as several thousand flu deaths per day in, in a severe flu season. Now, again, I'm not minimizing the tragedy even of a single life lost here. I'm not equating this thing to the flu, and I'm not denying the the potential widespread carnage that we still might have in front of us here. 
But with all that said, as of now, this virus has not exactly delivered existential levels of carnage. Very, very, very far from it. And also, I should say, just a caveat, please understand I'm not advocating against, you know, staying indoors and all that stuff. I'm not a doctor. I'm certainly not going to go against the official recommendations from people who have, you know, far more data than I do. So stay indoors, follow the recommendations, wash your hands and so forth, totally. But I am, however, pretty well versed in, in the media business and the social media stuff and in the news industry. And speaking of which, I can see quite a few different effects at play here as pertains to the media. There are at least two clear effects in play, one that I would call the proximity effect. Now, when we see pictures of people who have recently passed away or something like that, I mean, it gives us a very palpable sense that, you know, we're next. And in this kind of day and age of, you know, one-liners and 140 character messages and memeified news and so forth, we forget that, you know, the vast majority of deaths here, they represent the elderly or people with pre-existing conditions. And I think that should offer some sense of, well, hope or consolation to the majority of us. But that's not the story we hear on a daily basis. But I think the fact is you, the listener, you're still very unlikely to perish from this. I mean, you might endanger others if you continue with your life like you have so far, and you should be hunkering down and avoiding contact, you know, particularly with the risk groups and so forth. But you're most likely going to be okay. But when we hear of a case that resonates with us, so for example, this alarming and really sentimental image of a 20-something falling ill and dying, that doesn't come with any kind of sense of proportion or sense of scale. I mean, let's not forget the typical case here is not your 20-year-old. And even though there are such cases, it doesn't mean that you're next. But hearing about these cases, it hits close to home, and that's exactly why I call it the proximity effect. You're also much more likely to remember that type of an event. You're more likely to share it, and you're going to retweet it, and you're going to redigest it over and over and over again. And remember that when you're sharing this stuff, you're not just sharing the news story, you're also sharing the sentiment, the feeling, and, and rightly or wrongly, you are contributing to that greater sense of panic and danger. I also mentioned this knee-jerk effect. Individual, community, and government. And you saw this knee-jerk slash bandwagon effect on the individual level very quickly. So once you see that line forming to the grocery store, then, well, suddenly everyone is a prepper. Everybody gets on that train. And the panic feeds more panic and so forth. Now, I suspected this phenomenon would start to materialize uh, in an earlier podcast, you know, several weeks ago. And that's exactly what happened. Now, you also see this kind of bandwagon effect on the government level. So, for instance, with the decision to effectively shut down the entire economy. So first, as you might remember, the governments were quite indecisive, really. They, they basically adopted this wait-and-see approach. And then once one player acted, then they all kind of quickly followed suit, really. And pretty suddenly, I mean, most governments, they pursued pretty draconian measures, actually. But of course, at this point, those measures had already lost most of their potency or certainly most of their proactive power. I mean, you're no longer nipping things in the bud. You're basically doing damage control. You're, you're, you're firefighting too little, too late and so forth. And so I really think that wait and see approach stands for weakness and it really shows poor instincts and essentially it stands for horrible leadership, if anything. I mean, you need to act and act early, decisively and definitively. And you could have, you know, cut the flights from China in January. That's when it really mattered. Anyway, this shutdown thing, this is something that was done 
I think, pretty hastily, pretty sloppily, and definitely very heavy-handedly. And every country basically did the same thing in quick succession. Now, the rationale and the core considerations underlying this decision, they weren't really communicated all that clearly. And I think, you know, this is the most critical decision you can possibly make. You're shutting down a country, pretty much. And I think the people have the right to know, you know, what were the underlying projections that were assessed, and especially if they point to total catastrophe. And also, the instructions that we were given, pretty much throughout the world, really, they were pretty crude. Stay indoors. But there was little emphasis on who in particular should stay home, i.e., you know, the elderly. It was also pretty unclear as to, you know, which industries are going to be critical at this point and which weren't, who can stay open, who can't. And of course, this led to a lot of confusion and a lot of worries started spreading and particularly over, you know, whether there would indeed be food available in the grocery stores and so forth. And we didn't need all this confusion. It didn't need to happen. And also, I think big picture here, without an economy, we don't have a civilization here. People need to eat. People will be venturing outdoors. That's why I say we should be emphasizing that the elderly in particular should be the ones in quarantine. And also, I mean, you could have achieved much more separation between you know, the risk and the lesser risk groups with pretty simple means. For example, with these pensioner happy hours at the grocery stores and so forth, and all that type of stuff is finally now becoming a thing, finally. But none of this is really like rocket science. And this really should have been the directive from day one, this kind of segmentation, this kind of prioritization of uh, risk groups and so forth. Now, one thing I am surprised about, though, is that the alternative media sources out there, few of them have really been questioning the government response thoroughly enough. Now, generally, a lot of your alt-techies are, you know, libertarian, they're laissez-faire, they're anti-government intervention and, you know, pro-sound business and so forth. But this time around, they basically were the first to advocate for, you know, government intervention, really, promoting the idea of a complete shutdown. And I think we're forgetting that, you know, we have actually had fairly similar viruses in the past. And back then, experts also suggested that, you know, we should stop the whole show and we should be pursuing similar measures to, you know, what we're doing right now. But we didn't. We did nothing, basically. And maybe we got lucky then. Maybe we're totally overreacting now. I think, you know, history will be able to tell us. But let's not convince ourselves that, you know, we know exactly what we're doing and that we're doing the right things and that we're doing them right. We don't know. Anyway, those who have been listening for a while probably know that, uh, as I say, I am a bit of a contrarian, to say the least. But I will provide criticism wherever it's due, right or left, you know, whatever it is. And what I find funny is that everyone kind of screamed at the top of their lungs to, you know, shut everything down right now without giving much thought as to, well, how we'll actually survive in the very immediate term, let alone the midterm or long term. And right now we're already discussing, you know, bailouts, not just for corporations, but for individuals, because it's quite clear that this is going to deliver severe damage to the economy. And these bailouts, they're going to amount to trillions of dollars. And it doesn't need to be said at this point that that's money that the government doesn't really have. Not in the EU, not in the States, not anywhere. And we're seeing suggestions for, you know, $2,000 a month for all adults in the States. I mean, congratulations. You're about to embrace full-on socialism overnight here. I mean, we didn't even have to wait for the dystopian universal basic income. We didn't even have to vote in AOC. You got it. And remember, I mean, the U.S. government already has a, what is it, $23 trillion debt load right now. And guess where that money is going to go, that freshly printed money? At this point, it's going to go to higher food prices. But I think more importantly, 
even if we manage to piece the system together with you know duct tape and paper money, and we do manage to keep things intact, we're only going to be saddling our children with you know an even greater problem down the line. Anyway, I'm going to be talking about all this economic fallout from the shutdown in the future podcast probably, but I will say right now that the economic damage might turn out to be far more severe than you know that of the virus. And, you know, already at this point, millions of people have probably already lost their jobs. And that's going to amount to a tremendous amount of, you know, deaths of sheer despair. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, we're not going to go back to where we were before the virus hit, economically speaking. The economic damage is done and we are basically in a new era. Anyway, getting back to the media here, I think a lot of the media, and this also includes, you know, alt tech and, uh, you know, even the citizen journalists out there, I think they've done a pretty poor job, actually, at you know investigating the historical pretext here. So, for instance, I mean, looking back to the swine flu, I mean, even the CDC estimated that there were 61 million cases in the U.S. alone. And that was during the course of a year. Now, granted, that, of course, represents a far, far, far lower mortality rate Or does it really? I mean, it represents a far lower mortality rate if you assume that uh, the current cases only amount to 20,000. Now, I for one think that you probably have many, many, many times more cases than that. But we shall see. But I guess more importantly, this H1N1 thing, it kind of burned itself out. And it's not quite clear how and why. But the point being, we didn't see all that much hysteria that time around, at least not relatively speaking. Now, suddenly, everyone is an epidemiologist, a statistician, you know, an emergency preparedness expert, and so forth. And I think what we've done here over the past couple of weeks is we've kind of drowned out the voices of authority. We've kind of clamored onto the authorities we happen to agree with. And all of a sudden, we trust, you know, computer nerds and data visualization experts as though they were some kind of new thought leaders on this thing. And that's exactly why I want to get back to looking at, you know, where we are right now, you know, and we are not yet at these kind of mass die-off levels. And that's why I want to look at what's happened in the past. In other words, epidemics have extinguished themselves. And finally, it's also why I want to look at, you know, what are the ramifications of, well, shutting down the whole world, which is what we're doing right now. And that's not going to be without consequences. Anyway, if it is true that this thing has a, let's say, three times to eight times higher mortality than the flu, then even so, what we're currently doing in terms of a response, it's probably a little bit overblown, more than a little bit. Anyway, whatever the case might be, we're going to be looking back at March 2020 for centuries to come, and we're going to study this sociological phenomenon that we're witnessing right now. And I think either we'll view this as the greatest global panic of all times, Or we're going to be looking back at this as, you know, the greatest failure to respond of all times. We'll see. Anyway, I am conscious that things are still unfolding and, you know, we may well see that the situation becomes far, 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 far more severe than it already is. And I do get the power of the exponential function and so forth. But that doesn't mean that all the action we've taken up until this point has been, you know, smart or adequate or justified. And when this thing finally blows over, and it will blow over, we're going to find ourselves in a world that is far worse than we could have imagined. And I think that's going to be from the lack of perspective that we're showing right now, from the lack of awareness and, you know, historical comparison, and from the lack of judgment as to the economic realities that we're faced with. We're going to go from viral hell to economic hell in a hurry. Anyway, on that cheery note, 
What are you doing to prepare for the aftermath of the virus? Are you thinking that far ahead already? Do you think we've lost our sense of proportion with regards to these numbers? Have we lost our minds? You can email me on podcast at nyman.media. That is podcast at n-y-m-a-n dot media. Remember, you can also suggest or request topics, and I'm happy to riff on them. But that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to comment on an episode or if you want to support the podcast, visit nyman.media slash podcast. That's n-y-m-a-n dot media slash podcast. Or feel free to leave a review wherever you're listening from. And thanks for listening. <laughs>